Yeah, we didn't have a wood screen. <laughs> I couldn't decide. So I had a tight budget. And someone told me how much the windscreen costs. And I said, okay, maybe I don't need it. And then I texted Sergio by the time, you know, me and him had decided he's going to come with me. And he told me, listen, this windscreen business has to happen. In Dakar, you have trucks in front of you. You have all kinds of cars. You need a windscreen because these big trucks or these big cars, if they pass you, rocks can fly in your way. He said, we Mm. can't do that in Dakar. He said, you know, shorter racers, it's fine. Trucks aren't around. It's not a big deal. But in Dakar, definitely need a windscreen. So I said, okay, I scrambled to get it done. And then the team told me, okay, we can do it, but it's going to take about two, three days. I said, fine. You know, so we did the first two days without it. I mean, I think it gave me resilience because we drove from Jeddah, the start to Hayel, and that was nine hours. And it was raining and it was cold and it was wet. Without and a windscreen. Without a windscreen <laughs> and raining. And But first of all, it's like a motorbike. And I love riding motorbikes. And when you're in a car that doesn't have a windscreen, you think to yourself that something's wrong. But If you were on a motorcycle, you would think that there's nothing wrong. So I told myself, come on, this is like a bike. I know rain is nice. Enjoy it. It's okay. It's giving you resilience. You're freezing. You're cold. It's okay. It's fine. The windscreen will come. So two days of some fresh air, I think, did me well, I think. This is the Metal Set. Hi, this is Dawn, an ultra cyclist and sports PR specialist. And I'm Afshan, an endurance athlete and journalist. And we're on a quest to bring you stories of tenacity, courage, and metal. From athletes in the Middle East and beyond. Our guest today, Dania Akil, is the first motorsport athlete on our podcast. And it's fitting since she has a lot of firsts herself. The first Saudi woman to hold a national competition license for speed bike circuit racing, the first Saudi woman to participate in an international rally competition, the first woman globally to win an FIA cross-country World Cup in the T3 category, the first Saudi woman to complete the Dakar rally, and last but not the least, the first Arab woman to finish in the top 10 of the same Dakar rally. And would you believe that she has only been racing for about three years? I have to admit, I am a bit obsessed with motorsport, and in particular rally racing. So personally, I was super excited to speak with Danya today and learn all about it. In our chat with her, we discuss how her love of driving started early. And we've seen some really cute pictures on Instagram documenting it as well. And an unintentional start to her racing career, which eventually led her to the prestigious Dakar Rally. She also tells us about the mindset that carried her through a period of recovery after an accident and her wonderful and judgment-free perspective on life and racing. Dania drops that she's also going to be racing in the 2023 Dakar Rally in Jan. This time with the windscreen, maybe add. We hope you enjoy the episode. Danya, welcome to the Metal Set Podcast. We're super hey, excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for your time. No, we're yeah, really, really excited. So I was mentioning before we hit record that, you know, my own journey into self-supported ultra cycling, in the process of kind of doing that, I've become a bit obsessed with the idea of rally racing. And it seems similar in terms of this world of adventure, much like ultra cycling, but a little more adrenaline fueled. I've been keeping an eye on the Dakar rally for the past couple of years. So I'm personally super, super excited to hear about everything Dakar and get insight into that world. Honestly, it is an amazing race. It's two weeks long. So this year they actually added two more days to it. Last year we did 12 racing days. This year it's going to be 14. 
And, you know, a lot of people gave me a lot of advice before I went to the race and I appreciated all of it. They said, you know, be careful. It's dangerous. You have to be prepared. I did a couple of races before Dakar in the World Cup to help me prep, but I didn't hear enough how, just how fun it was. You know, when I got there and I started driving day after day after day, of course, it was challenging and, you know, demanding, but it was so much fun. And uh, I just felt like I was in a camp, you know, just doing something that I love to do all day, every day. And nobody's saying, okay, time to stop. Or, I mean, you do eventually stop. But it was a lot of fun. If you like the outdoors, if you like to drive, if you like to challenge yourself, uh, to challenge your mind, to hold a lot of information and make very quick decisions, it does does take you to the limits. It's, It's really great. That's amazing. For me, someone who hasn't been following rally racing like Dawn has, I would like you to break this down for me just a little bit. So what exactly is rally racing? Because for me, F1 comes to mind when motorsport, when we talk about motorsport, because that is the most kind of visible motorsports out there. But I know rally racing is picking up quite quickly and fast. I mean, it's always been around, but it it has now come to prominence. So can you tell us a little bit about what that is? I think rally racing is easier to follow now because you have all this tech. So people are able to access the race through drones and video footage, aerial footage, things that were, I think, very difficult to do. In the circuit, it's much more accessible. Like you said, the visibility is high, but that it's in a circuit, right? Everything is in front of you. You can yeah. you can watch everything. So uh, I think visibility is key. It's a key word for rally. Uh, so there's different disciplines in rally. Rally basically means uh, off-road racing. If I had to summarize it very, right. I mean, you, you still have rally cars that can drive on asphalt, but let's say in general, it's off-road as opposed to the circuit races that have the Formula One, although you can have off-road circuits. So it, it there is hybrids, right? So the mm. discipline I'm in is called cross-country, which is rally raid also. And cross-country means cutting uh, long distances off-road. So the World Cup I did last year and this year is called the Baja World Cup. The Baja World Cup means cross-country, so long distances, but under 2,000 kilometers total for the race. Rally Raid, which is the cross-country world championship, which is the Dakar Rally is now a part of, that's over 2,000 kilometer races. So actually, Dakar Rally is the longest Rally Raid race in the world, and it's about 9,000 kilometers over two weeks. So that's really what rally is. It's uh, And specifically, if we're going to talk about the discipline I joined, which is cross-country, it's long-distance races that are off-road. And in this part of the world, I mean, you would think of desert, but you'd be surprised how diverse actually the terrain can be. But the Baja World Cup is great because it has eight rounds and four of them are in Europe, four of them are in um, Middle East and other areas. So you really get to see different terrain. It's really wonderful. Take us back to how this came about in your life, right? Have you always liked cars? Have you always liked bikes? Growing up as a child, what happened there? I saw um, something on Instagram. I saw a reel where you're in a Barbie Jeep. Barbie I did. Jeep. I did see that too, actually. Yeah. Barbie Jeep. I love that car so much. It was a plastic Barbie Jeep. Me and my sister had it. I used to love cars, honestly, from a very young age. It wasn't really actually cars. I have to tell you that I'm not too well-versed in uh, car lingo, but I loved to drive a lot. I just love to drive anything that moves. That includes bicycles. As well, actually, it's not just necessarily engines, but uh, I loved engines because they were powerful and they were fast. And I like speed. I like to do everything fast. Um, I had to learn a lot that actually you need to do things slowly a lot of the time to get things done quickly. That was one of the 
I think biggest challenges I had, my instinct was always to do things ASAP and I would make mistakes quite uh, quite a lot. So I liked speed, I liked movement, uh, bicycles, that plastic Jeep, go-karts, quad bikes, you know, the four-wheel bikes. When I got a bit older, I uh, had my eye on one of my uncle's dirt bikes and kind of played around with it. Um, and then the quad bikes we used to use so like in Saudi, where I'm from, in Jeddah, on the weekend, we'd go to uh, a beach or um, or the farm or, you know, private homes of uh, family and friends. And so in those areas, we would be able to use these quad bikes or dirt bikes or go-karts or, you know, Saudi is vast. So, for example, my cousins uh, go to their farm and we'd use one of the quad bikes and we could just go for hours, actually. Sometimes I would just keep it for way too long. I had to, you know, give it back to the others. But um, I just love to play all the time with these kinds of machines. And then um, I lived in Saudi till I was 14. And then I went to boarding school in the UK. And when I was in the UK, I was able to get my driving license when I turned 17. And I was so ready for it. I had my first driving lesson when I was 17 on my birthday, you know, just so I can do it ASAP. Ready. Just so ready. <laughs> And I did it. I passed my test and I, I got the I got the license. I had a Mini Cooper that I would drive to school and back. It was a great car. And I had fun with it. And then when I got older, when I was about 25, I started taking lessons to get my motorcycle license. And then by the time I was 27, I had gotten my motorcycle license. I finished my uh, master's degree all that time I was in the UK. And then I moved back to the Middle East. And then that's when I started racing. Not intentionally, actually. I just used to go to the autodrome in Dubai as a hobby on the weekend. And then slowly, slowly, just kind of, you know, started getting into the competitions, raced with the National Cup, with the Ducati Cup, uh, raced in Bahrain, and then ended up in rally because Saudi Arabia hosts Dakar and World Cup Bajas. And that's how I ended up eventually being in rally. But the, the route to it was very, um, it was just a series of events that were very straightforward. It was like driving license when I'm 17, motorcycle when I'm 27, racing license when I'm 30, you know, all just because I loved to drive. It wasn't really, let's just end up being a racing driver and this is the way to do it. And it was, it was just a very organic step-by-step kind of unfolding, which I, yeah, which I enjoyed because it's nice to not know what's, what's happening, right? I mean, it's good Mm -hmm. to plan. Now, obviously my strategy is much more defined about what I want to do, where I want to race, how I want to race, what I'm driving. But uh, leading up to, you know, getting into rally raid or cross country, that wasn't so well defined. It was a bit more like, is this available? Okay, what's next kind of mm-hmm. thing. And and the landscape was changing a lot the past few mm-hmm. years here in Saudi. So it was difficult to, to kind of project two, three years down the line what I was going to do. Just Let's taking say- a step back to motorcycle racing on the circuit, you're the first Saudi woman to hold a national competition license for <laughs> speed bike circuit racing. For speed bikes, yeah. Yeah, and that was issued by the Saudi Saudi. Yeah, the Saudi Motorsport, exactly, the Saudi Motorsport Federation. That was fun. I was in Dubai. That was when I was going to the track days. And then um, some of the racers told me, why don't you join the competition with us next season? And I said, okay, what do I have to do? They said, well, you need a racing license. And the federation here in in UAE can uh, give you a test. And if you pass the test, you can get a license. But you need a letter from the Saudi Federation that says... It's called a non-objection to compete letter. So actually every driver who wants to compete outside of their home country needs a letter like that. Also, if they want to apply for a racing license, they need that letter from their home federation. Uh, That's just standard protocol. So I called the Saudi Federation. I said, listen, I'm applying in UAE for my racing license. Can I get this letter? And they said, well, why don't you do the tests? And if you pass, don't apply for a UAE license. 
apply to us for a Saudi license and we'll issue it for you. And that was a really nice moment because I told my mom and I told my friends that it was really interesting to be part of a conversation where you could see a door being opened, right? You know, I didn't ask for the license. I didn't say, listen, I love racing. Can you please open it for women? That's not what happened. I just said, can I get this letter so I can get an Emirati license? And they said, no, why don't you pass the test and come get a Saudi license? So it was nice because they saw a demand. They saw that there was a woman who wanted to race, which maybe they didn't see before, so specifically for national speed bike competition. And they said, okay, we'll issue the first one here. It's a moment that I'll remember because it changes your mentality or your mindset. You know, a lot of people think that everything is fixed and these are the rules and this is how things work. But to be part of a conversation that says, actually, you know, there's this door now that's open, it just kind of shows you that things change. Things evolve. Nothing is uh, as solid as it may or may not seem. As uh, a really, really impactful uh, experience. Guess, yeah, you were just looking to get your license, not thinking about being the first of anything, right? You just wanted to. Race, I mean, the but... landscape. Yeah, the landscape was changing. You know, I, I, I was just there. I was a customer. You know, I had this demand, and the product became available. You know, it was just perfect timing, so it, it was really nice. And then I took the license and I started racing. And you did the Ducati Cup in the UAE National Sports Bike Super Series 2019-2020 season, and you yeah. had a trophy for Rookie of the Year. Yeah, exactly. Were there many women racing in that series? In the Ducati Cup, there weren't, but there was a lady in the Superstock group, Katerina. She lives in Dubai. She was oh, racing for a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah, very nice girl. But anyway, you don't race by gender. You race yeah. all together in one group. So it wasn't really defined. Like it wasn't highlighted how many women there were or they didn't race. We didn't race alone. Yeah, we raced, raced. You race all together. So um, you're just drivers or riders all together. Amazing. Growing up, you know, you used to go with your cousins, your friends, did the dirt biking. At any point, was safety an issue or did it ever come up with your family at all? I think my mom told me that uh, she, she knew, obviously she's my mother, she saw me as a kid. And uh, she said that she wasn't surprised when I started racing. I mean, you can see the signals, right? You have a mm. kid who just gravitates towards these kinds of machines and she wasn't surprised. When it comes to safety, you, you know, you do have all the equipment, you know, the safety standards are super high. Uh, the FIA, where we race with the World Cup and the championship, World Rally Championship, that's FIA regulated and their safety standards are extremely high. The organizers of these events are very strict about uh, the equipment and um, everything that you need to wear. So there are protocols and procedures that, um, you know, limit the risks in that sense. And you decide as a driver what kind of level of safety you want to enforce on your drive. I would say I'm a safe driver. Once or twice, I have made mistakes that were dangerous, but not because I knew that I was in danger. It was more because I think I had, in both scenarios, maybe the wrong priority list. So once I had it on my mind that I wanted to get there as fast as possible, that that's not really the way. The, the first thing on your priority list should be safety, control, and calm, and comfort. And if you feel at any point that you can't see the next move, back off. If your priority is to get there ASAP, that means that you're going to go blind some corners, or you're going to go blind over some crossings, and you're going to take a risk. Anytime I've done that, I've always reflected and said, okay, why was my subconscious reckless? What did I do wrong? And then I would realize, okay, I prioritized the win over vision, for example. I wouldn't do that again. And then my body would have a, a 
reaction the next time. Like if I felt at any point unsafe or that I couldn't see, my body instinctively would back off because it remembers the episode or the incident that was risky and ended up costing us whatever it cost us. My grandmother, who I lived with last year before Dakar, told me it's not important to win. I mean, it's my first Dakar. I didn't think that I was going to win, and I didn't win, but we finished well. We finished top 10. But when she said it's not important to win, I looked at her and I said, but I don't understand what you mean. I mean, it's a race. I don't expect to win, but... You're competing. I disagree with that principle. And then she said, okay, okay, let me correct myself. She said, safety first, you know? And I, I told her, okay, that I'm with you. Okay, that I can do. Because I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to... She said... You know, don't focus on um, on the front or, and I can't, I can't just say okay, okay, and then no. I said I, I don't, I don't agree. What do you mean? And then when she said safety first, I was like, okay, that I'll take with me. I'll take that one for sure. And she's right. You know, safety first. It's hard to remember sometimes when you're in the competition and you want to uh, do your best and see what kind of time you can get. But safety first has to be at the forefront of your mentality, your goals, your priorities as a driver, because that will um, enforce a protection layer through your intention that no matter what you wear as a safety, it's not going to be as powerful as that intention to hold safety first, right? Because that will dictate all of the decisions that you then make after. So if you have that at the forefront, safety first, then you'll get to the limit that you're capable of behind that priority. That's really the way to do it. In 2019, you did meet with an accident though. Are you comfortable talking about what happened there and, you know, what the road to recovery was? For the first season, I was in bikes, racing bikes. I went to uh, Dubai, but I also raced in Bahrain. I joined the Super Stock Series there. Um, So I had the accident in Bahrain in February 2020. It was about six months into the start of the season. I had had just come back from a racing school in Spain and I had learned a lot and my speed had picked up and my lap times were better. And I took a really tight uh, left turn on the Bahrain circuit, the Oasis circuit. And it takes you really tight left and then the straight, which is like across the finish line. So usually with the really tight left, you, you, you get your body off the bike, you lean it. And then when you're exiting the corner, you put your weight back onto the middle of the bike, you accelerate and you go straight. So in my case, I had leaned the bike too much to the left. So when I wanted to pick it back up to go onto the straight, I didn't have enough power and my weight sort of took us down to the to the track instead of back up onto the bike. And, you know, it, it was a simple mistake. It wasn't a very, I was very lucky. It wasn't a bad crash. It was what we call a low side, which is when you land on the same side that you're leaning on. Some bikers have a high side crash, and that means that they land on the opposite side of where they were leaning, so they get thrown over the bike. Alhamdulillah, so in my case, it was a low side. It was a very quick mistake. I think I just I just leaned too much. You know, it was too heavy to pick it up. I had a few broken bones in my pelvis, my spine, but nothing that needed surgery, so I was very lucky. And I just had to um, kind of be patient for a couple of months. The doctors told me, just stay off. Uh, don't put too much weight on your legs. And I did uh, physio every day. I went swimming, you know, using like a life jacket. I'd go swimming and kept my upper body in good shape. And that helped me with the post-healing uh, part. Because sometimes if you don't move, you lose a lot of muscle. And then the recovery takes ages. So I tried to keep my as much muscle as I could during the injury. Kind of just uh, work out. In all the other places other than 
where my pelvis was affected or my legs. And I was driving my car actually, you know, because my my ankles were fine and my arms were fine. So it was just the pelvis, which is the seat area. Uh, so I had no problem driving my car. My family didn't love that, but I told them that it was... Um, <laughs> like, take a break. <laughs> I, I love you know, that. I told them, I remember saying, you don't drive with your pelvis. That maybe I could have <laughs> said better. But um, what I told them was that actually I felt better driving myself than someone else driving me. Because when I drove, I could anticipate where the turns were, where the bumps mm. were. So I wasn't kind of uh, at the mercy of the movement mm-hmm. of the car. I could almost shift myself in preparation of the bump or the turn or whatever it was. So I actually hurt less when I did it because I knew what was coming. And also I wanted to maintain a regular lifestyle within, you know, reasonable boundaries. So, okay, yes, a couple of months, no walking, no running, no things like that. But, you know, everything that I could do, I would do. Uh, When I first got home, my grandma said, okay, you can just stay in the room. We'll bring you everything. And uh, I'm not going to stay in the room. Yeah. I can't stay. <laughs> I, I hear you because when earlier this year I broke my bone, I felt like I had lost a lot of like independence and it just didn't feel right. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting you say that. It was it was difficult to depend on people because I don't, uh, it doesn't make me feel very good to do that. But I couldn't compare my dependency level to a person who wasn't injured. That was unreasonable and that would make me suffer. I'd feel emotionally, you know, pained if I did that. So I didn't. I said, okay, what are these new limitations that I have for this short period of time? I mean, it, it was only two months, which is which is the blink of an eye, you know. Mm-hmm. Close relative of mine at the time was, you know, terminally ill. So, so I, I didn't think that I was in a bad situation. I thought or I believed that I was in a very lucky situation and I had to be patient for a couple of months and you know go through it in the in the best way because I was lucky so I saw the limits okay I can do this I can't do that no problem so I would just do what I could and I found that I could do a lot actually if I didn't have that mentality I might have had a worse injury if that makes sense even though it would have been the same yeah but I think I would have had a worse experience I just did what I could do. I went swimming. I I read a lot. I visited my friends. I went for coffee. I drove my car. I mean, I I could manage. And, you know, I went to visit my my aunt and uncle. And they have a lot of ramps in the house because, you know, my uncle and my grandmother in that house, they use chairs. So I'd go there with my chair. So I, I just did whatever I could do within these new limits. Very similar to... It was at the time of the COVID, the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So it was very similar to what everybody was going through with the pandemic. I just happened to be going through it with my body Mm -hmm. uh, in a very immediate, you know, kind of environment, as opposed to people feeling limited uh, by not being able to travel, not being able to go to the office, not being able to socialize. Everybody was going through this kind of uh, Mm -hmm. assessment of these new limits and boundaries and how to adapt within those new um, rules. And I just had the exact same experience. It just so happened that it was within my own body as opposed to my life in general. And it passed. It was okay. I think changing your perspective as well helps in the healing process, right? Because then you're, you're not even doing anything to enable yourself to recover. So that's very strong. I think you wrote a book in the process as well. Was that part of the healing process? Well, I needed something to do. I needed to produce. You know, I was, 
I wasn't working. Actually, later in the year, I did do some remote work with the C20 when Saudi Arabia was hosting the G20 forum. That was really interesting. But before the C20 role came along, I had about four months of just, you know, doing physio, going swimming. And that was nice, but that was about two, three hours of the day. So I'd be awake for, I don't know how many, <laughs> 14, 15 hours. I'd read books, but it's different to do something, right? To see yourself uh, produce. So I, I do like to write and I thought to myself, why don't I write a bunch of short stories that are all, they're all true stories, they're all experiences that I've had, lessons that I've learned uh, from different parts of my life and, you know, school, for example, family, uh, trips, racing, actually. Uh, I wrote about the accident in one chapter. And I wanted to highlight a lesson from each experience and share it with somebody because I thought, I mean, you learn things from everything that happens in your life, right? And if you share it with somebody, they might find it useful. They might not, right? It depends. Um, so I decided to publish it because then it gave me more of a motivation to kind of clean it up and make it better and make it understandable and relatable. And, you know, and I had fun with it. I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. It took me about two, three months, maybe something like that. And I filled the book in with pictures that I had taken from trips all around the world that I took. And that was nice too, because I love taking pictures and uh, I feel like they just sit there on my iPhone or my iCloud and, you know, that's the end of their life. So at least in this book, you know, I could see them there. It was a good project. I, I really did enjoy it. It was fun. Just to echo um, what Afshan said, such a good mindset to have, like through, you know, what would derail a lot of people, like if they're racing and injuries and you know, I've had illnesses myself and I haven't bounced back like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, life fantastic. is short, you know, when a doctor tells you you're going to be fine in two months. I mean, what that was it for me. Because the doctor said that, I, you know, when, if you fall off a motorcycle and, and you have an injury and it's affected your spine, it can go a number of different ways. So when somebody tells you, you know, two months and you're, you know, you're back to your usual, you know, body, I think I was just really over the moon. I was so appreciative of the card that I had been dealt. I was so happy uh, with that as an outcome that I couldn't be anything but uh, grateful, honestly. So through your recovery, were you going to go back into motorcycle racing? Because I think, you know, COVID hits, you're recovering. And then, you know, if one just looks at your Instagram, for example, it's like motorcycle, motorcycle, motorcycle. And then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, <laughs> to rally racing. How did that happen? Uh, I love motorcycles. I actually rode a bike a couple of months after the accident. I've been riding bikes since, but I haven't raced them. Uh, not because of the accident. It was more because it was 2020, the borders were closed, and I wasn't, uh, you know, rushing to get back to the racetrack. That wasn't how I felt. I was, um, I did work with the C20, and then at the time, the Dakar was coming around. It's the end of the year, and the Saudi Motorsport Federation invited me to see the Dakar because they knew I raced on bikes. So they invited me to come see the Dakar and they said, why don't you get into cross country? We have these amazing races here in Saudi Arabia. Um, and I really liked it. I mean, it's a really fun atmosphere and it's an international uh, race. You know, it's, it's, it's on the world championship list for the FIA and Saudi also hosts Baja World Cup rounds. I mean, it's not that I compared it with bikes in any way. It, it was more like bikes was a hobby that I did when I had a job in Dubai. And if I was going to do that professionally, it wasn't possible for me to do bike circuit racing professionally because I was over 30. I wasn't that fast. It takes a long time to get to a certain level. It wasn't going to be sponsored. It doesn't have that kind of context. You know, it's a national cup. It's a different situation. With rally, it's international. It's We're talking about world championship. We're talking about top teams in the world coming to race in the sport. You're talking about drivers who are well into their 50s you know, winning races, winning championships. Nasr Atiyah is in his 50s. He's won 
the Dakar last year. He won the rally championship. And um, I saw a longer lifeline and a potential career in this space, which I didn't see with the bikes because it just wasn't open for me, you know, mm-hmm. for for the reasons I mentioned, the age, the level, things like that. So I went for it. I said, okay, I'll do the Dakar. Why not? Let me just look for sponsors and let me do a couple of races before Dakar. Obviously, you know, the federation said, you need to race before this. Said, okay, <laughs> fine. Of course, of course, I need to race before it. Yeah. They were right. They linked me up with the Saudi driver, Saleh Sif, really nice guy. And he had a T3 car. So in Dakar and cross country, you have five categories for racing. You have T1, T2, T3, T4, T5. T1 is like the main category, the... Nasr Atiyah, who I mentioned, he drives a T1, and that is the um, rally cars. T2 is like a manufacturer car. So, for example, Toyota use a Land Cruiser, just like you would find on the road, but with a couple of safety elements attached to it. T3 is what I drove, which are called lightweight prototypes. And they usually uh, are built from scratch by teams who want to make a prototype car, or they're used by people like Yamaha, Polaris, Can-Am. They have vehicles and they tweak them according to the specifications they want. T4 is very similar to T3. It's the same kind of cars, but they have to be a stock available car. So Yamaha, Polaris, Canam, they all sell those T4 cars in the in the consumer market. Mm-hmm. That's the main difference between T3 and T4. But in reality, th- they're very similar. But the T3 cars have a higher speed limit. So they don't really compete with T4. It's not really that fair. And then T5 is trucks. Actually, really massive, huge, big trucks, which is really fun. They look wild. It looks wild when you see the stuff on Dakar, like the social media, because it looks like a transport truck. Yeah, It's wild. Going over dunes. It's wild when they pass you. You know, when they pass you, I I just get out of the way ASAP. (laughs) Yeah, and you're tiny compared to them. So Mm. you really do got to move. But I love running into the trucks in the dunes because when you see a truck in the dune, it's perfect because you can see the top of their car, right? Because it's such a big car. So you can actually see how the dunes break. If you look at the roof, so yeah, so a couple, yes, yeah, so, so a couple yeah. of times I would I would see a truck, and you know, I mean, the corridor, I'd be like, let's let them cross the dunes and just take their line, you know, because because then we can go faster if we know yeah, yeah. if we know what's coming. The biggest yeah. obstacle in the dunes is that you don't know what's behind the sand, yeah, so you yeah. have to really be careful when you see you a ever see one truck, like totally disappear quick, and you're like, oh no, we did see trucks disappear, and you know, we say, okay go around that. So, I mean, <laughs> but that's not a, that's not a long-term goal. That's a short-term hack, mm. but long-term, yeah. you know, ideally as a driver, you want to be in a position where you don't need any other cars to be Strategy. in front of you, right? Like that's, you don't want yeah. other cars in front of you because that means that you're always behind somebody. But for a first Dakar, I was very happy to be behind trucks in the dunes. It didn't happen every time, but when it did happen, I felt like, you know, the big whales and they have these little fish coming to like... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was nice. So your first rally race, 2021, was in cross-country Baja World Cup, is that correct? Yeah, in uh, Saudi. Did you make a decision, like a, a considered decision between T3 and T4? And what was your first race like? How how long had you been practicing or learning before the um, race? The Federation, Saudi Federation recommended, well, they didn't actually, they recommended that I enter a race. They didn't specify the categories, but I had understood that the T3 and the T4 were in the, let's say, the friendliest entry point because mm-hmm. the vehicles in T3, T4 are very, well, relatively easy to drive compared to the bigger cars. Uh, they're more affordable. Uh, they can cross these big dunes and, you know, with less maybe experience as a driver, the T3 and the T4 are much friendlier. So as an entry point, they're great. 
so I so the federation linked me up with this driver Saleh Hasif, very nice guy, and he told me that he had a T3 available, and he asked me if I was interested in T3 or T4. And I said, I'm interested in whatever you have. So he said that um, I have a T3. And I said, okay, let's go. I drove the car the first time actually at the race. But <laughs> love it. But but honestly, um, I didn't drive it in a way that I was racing. I drove it as if it was my first time in this car, which it was. And I just wanted to get to the finish line. So mm-hmm. zero risk, zero adventure, zero drama. Just zero just, pressure on yourself, right? Just no, no pressure on yourself. But it, I mean, it's also, it's not even about pressure. It's just being realistic. You've never mm-hmm. driven this car. You've never raced in this sport. Yeah. Don't think that you're a racer because you have a suit on. Just get to the finish line in the safest way possible. Learn as you go. Release any idea Understand of yourself. Understand the car, let go of any idea of yourself as a racer or a driver, because if you attach this idea that you're somehow now a professional because you just so happen to have a license and have, be in a car, you lose the reality that it's your first time. It's your first experience. You just want to get to the finish line. You don't want to do anything cool. You don't want to do anything ridiculous or crazy or wild. You're not fast just because you managed to get yourself into a car. You are just in this car. That needs to be the psychology because if you think you're a racing driver because you have a suit on and you manage to get in the car, you can have a problem. So I just wanted to get into um, a mentality where I just crossed the finish line and maintain that. So I did that in the first race, the second, the third, the fourth, and the fifth. And we were lucky to win the T3 category in Cross Country Baja World Cup 2021 because there was um, very scarce competition with the pandemic. And I focused all the time on finishing the race. And that meant mm-hmm. collecting points at each event. And um, there was usually less than five cars. So after five races of always finishing and always collecting points, I managed to accumulate enough to win the cup. And it wasn't because I was trying to be fast. I wasn't. I just wanted to get to the finish line. And um, that works. You know, obviously this year that wouldn't have been enough to win because the competition is um, more extensive. There's more people back around the world racing every race. I'm actually right now in second behind a driver called Fernando Alvarez, who's really fast he's an amazing guy and i've learned a lot from him about what can be done and the kind of speeds that we can get to and the kind of times that we can do so he's been a great teacher and it's a completely different experience this year this year is no i want to get to the finish line and i want to do it as fast as possible what does that mean what does that look like but that's after doing a full season of just finishing just finishing but just finishing is still important even now. Mm-hmm. It's not just, you know, go as fast as you can at the expense of anything. No, just finish is with safety. It's at the beginning. You're safe, you just finish, and then comes how fast can you do it. In. But those two points are crucial. Without those two points, I wouldn't recommend anybody getting into the sport. Without safety and, and the goal to finish. When I got my first bike in 2020, I was in the same position as you were when you got your first prototype. Whatever you have in the market, give it to me. I wasn't getting a bike for my size. So the first bike I found, I got it. But now it's become an extension of me. Are you still riding the same car? No, I'm not. I drive a different car. So I'm always looking for the next uh, the next thing. What's, what's the next thing I can do? How can I make things easier for myself to get faster? What do I need? Do I need to change the car? And that was one of the things, yeah, I needed to change the car to, to drive a newer one mm-hmm. with, a, with a team that has a lot of experience. And um, next year, I'm looking at what to do next year, for example, within the same topic. And, you know, you always have to, it's like every business needs to keep growing, right, mm-hmm. at, to some point. And then, 
you know, as a driver, you have to keep growing and you always have to ask yourself, what are the variables that need to change or need to shift or need to move? What strategy? What's my strategy now? What have I accomplished? What's my next goal? And what are the things that need to change to support that new goal? So I don't do things on repeat unless they feel like they should stay as is. Mm-hmm. But usually there's always something to change, usually, yeah. in the beginning of a career. Yeah, I mean, what an amazing accomplishment your first year. <laughs> like, I'm sure you went into that, like, as you said, kind of just finished the race. Lots and then, you know. Yeah, yeah, circumstances, you know, circumstances were favorable. And yeah, uh, you have I mean, to do your part. You have to do your that's part. The, that's part of racing, right? But, sometimes mm-hmm. circumstances are favorable and sometimes they're not. And they're favorable. So you took advantage, which is amazing. So, you know, lots of racing 2021 leads you to the Dakar earlier this year, January, correct? It was first yeah, January? January 22. It's a lot of fun. Amazing yeah. race. And you have a co-driver. How did you meet your co-driver first? Sergio. Is Sergio correct? Sergio, yeah. Sergio yeah. Fuente, Incredible guy. Sergio uh, raced with a Saudi racer called Saeed Al-Muri in Dakar the year before. And they got along really well. Saeed's a nice guy. He told me that Sergio is a great person. And Sergio has a lot of experience. He actually won the Dakar on a quad a while oh back God. when it was wow. held in South America. So, so he's a good, he's a good driver. Yeah. Um, he was available. He wasn't planning to enter the Dakar. And two weeks before the race, I needed a co-driver, and I texted him, and he said, "Yeah, I'm with you. Let's go." He speaks mostly Spanish. He has a few English words here and there. I speak English and a little bit of Spanish, so we kind of have our custom communication it style. A racing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but. Um, I feel like he's a gift because he he goes beyond or he went beyond his role as a co-driver. I've said this, that he really helped me a lot in Dakar. He supported me through the race. He would tell me when to speed up, when to slow down and give me advice. That was very much about the drive. Mm-hmm. And I mean, add that to his task as a co-driver is not an easy feat, you know, for him to keep an eye on where we're going, to keep an eye on all the notes, to see if we're in the right place. I mean, he did a lot. He really did a lot. Uh, so I'm grateful to him for that. And we spent the year racing in Saudi together. Uh, I did the Europeans, uh, European races with uh, Laurent Leclerc, very nice uh, co-driver as well. He, I raced with Laurent in my first race last year. So Sergio came to race with me in Saudi and we'll do Dakar 23 together. But I oh, definitely feel amazing. lucky to have I mean, met him. Correct me if I'm wrong, you don't know your route ahead of time, right? You get it that morning, is that correct? Yeah, part of the cross country is that you get the road book. It's called the road book. It's basically the map. You get it at the, in the morning, half an hour before you start. And the co-driver takes this road book and reads the instructions to you as you drive. And you base your direction on a heading, so a cap, which is basically a degree from the compass. And the roadbook has all of the cap throughout the race. So, you know, you're heading. And then it also gives you notes, for example, that you're going to be crossing dunes or that you're going to be crossing an open uh, flat area or that you're going to be crossing a canyon or a valley or a river. Uh, So it has all these notes. It'll tell you, you know, watch out here. You should be cautious. There's a bump or there's a dip. You know, look for, go around the mountain heading 30 degrees or something like that so it has all the instructions i love the fact that it was two weeks before the race that you found sergio and it was was. just such a good synergy like there's so many things i think but you make it work you also you also you know we were lucky but we also both committed to understanding each Mm -hmm. other he's patient i'm patient we listen we communicate if i don't understand something i do not get frustrated Mm -hmm. i just tell him no, wait, hold on. I don't think I get it. You know, take our time. 
you know, if we have to use Google Translate, we do. You know what I mean? It, it, it's you have to respect each other. You have to treat each other with respect. You have to never blame anybody in the car for anything because even if I made a driver's error or he made a slight navigation error, it's fine. You're a human being, right? Mm-hmm. You're racing. You're under uh, time constraints. You're you're processing a lot of information. You have to be forgiving to yourself and to your co-driver to a certain degree because. I mean, obviously you want to have a flawless race, but you mm-hmm. also have to understand that people are people. Things happen. You know, yeah. in, in that car, I made a driver's error. I broke the car and he was upset, but he wasn't upset for him. He was upset for me that I that I messed up our race. You know, we, we recovered, but he wanted more for me. For him also, for him also, but he's more seasoned. You know, he wanted more for me. And he got upset just for a few minutes and then he just let it go you have to do that and um i was sorry you know and you just have to be forgiving and he shows that forgiveness i don't and if he makes a slight error or whatever i talk to him about it later and i ask him you know what happened why did this happen and then we communicate better and he tells me this happened because i was expecting you to do xyz Mm -hmm. right and then i tell him oh okay i'll do that better next time like we talk about errors if any and why and that that's maybe when we have to use google translate the most is when we're out of like the normal pattern of communication but it's really important to go back and forth it's like any job you know when you have a coworker and you guys need to work together to achieve your goals if you don't communicate mm-hmm. you, it's going to be very limited experience and yeah. and the thing that you produce is going to be um you're going to limit yourself i don't think there's a perfect person out there for everybody when it comes to team or co-workers or drivers i think that you can there's an average range of people that you would be well working with but i think what takes you over the edge to have that synergy is how you guys decide to mm-hmm. interact with each other and how you choose to behave i think a lot of this great relationship is built on choice and effort not just okay he dropped in from the sky and he's perfect for me no we've chosen we've chosen you don't have to work hard you just have to choose it and do it it doesn't have to be a challenge uh, but it definitely has to be a choice i have to ask about this as well so ahead of the race i've done some research before and you didn't have a windscreen at the start of the race is that correct yeah, we didn't have a wood screen. <laughs> I couldn't decide. So I had a tight budget. And someone told me how much the windscreen cost. And I said, okay, maybe I don't need it. And then I texted Sergio by the time, you know, me and him had decided he's going to come with me. And he told me, listen, this windscreen business has to happen. In Dakar, you have trucks in front of you. You have all kinds of cars. You need a windscreen because these big trucks or these big cars, if they pass you, rocks can fly in your way. He said, we Mm. can't do that in Dakar. He said, you know, shorter racers, it's fine. Trucks aren't around. It's not a big deal. But in Dakar, definitely need a windscreen. So I said, okay, I scrambled to get it done. And then the team told me, okay, we can do it, but it's going to take about two, three days. I said, fine. You know, so we did the first two days without it. I mean, I think it gave me resilience because we drove from Jeddah, the start to Hayel, and that was nine hours. And it was raining and it was cold and it was wet. Without and a windscreen. Without a windscreen <laughs> and raining. And But first of all, it's like a motorbike. And I love riding motorbikes. And when you're in a car that doesn't have a windscreen, you think to yourself that something's wrong. But if you were on a motorcycle, you would think that there's nothing wrong. So I told myself, come on, this is like a bike. I know rain is nice. Enjoy it. It's okay. It's giving you resilience. You're freezing. You're cold. It's okay. It's fine. The windscreen will come. So two days of some fresh air, I think, did me well, I think. 
there's the prologue right ahead of the actual racing like what were your thoughts what was the vibe the prologue was in Hayel, uh, which is where we qualify and then we have our start time based on how well we did or how fast we were I think we were in the middle of our grid in our group. I don't remember how I felt, to be honest. I remember just looking at the other cars when we were done, just watching them, just just seeing what cars were around, the drivers, and you have different kinds of cars in the T3 groups. I was just checking them out. It was a really big crowd, actually. A lot of cars. T3, we were 48 cars. Mm. So, yeah, I was just looking around. It was nice. And then you're starting, right? Like it's 12 days. Dakar is the ultra of motorsports. We can do an entire episode on this particular competition itself. But what we'd like to know from you, from your first Dakar earlier this year, the highlights of the 12 days of racing and also some of the lowlights, actually. Look, honestly, I... I don't have this kind of detail. It was very long race and it just kind of all merged into one big drive. There were some really nice moments. Some days were really fast, a bit like a circuit, long, long turns, wide. Every day was fun. Everything was different. You had one day where you had dunes and sand and all these kinds of things. One day you had uh, huge open surfaces, like a bit like you were on the moon, you know, like rocky and gravel and things like that with like really nice... Uh, uh, rocky mountains and then you had these um, boulders and really you know bumpy rides closer to the end of the race every day had its own thing you know and it was all just kind of one piece in my mind it wasn't segmented or divided because it's one race i didn't clock in and clock out i didn't say five days down seven to go i didn't do that because it's not linear it's it's one race you know if you if you split it up like that, I think that your attitude can change. You know, if you say, okay, I've done three days, maybe you behave differently in the middle. If you say there's only two days left, maybe you behave a bit differently. Maybe you drive differently. I didn't do that. I said, you know, it's one race. There's a start and there's a finish. It's, it's one event. Uh, I don't want to split it up. I don't think it helps. I think it helps to know that you're in one race. Mm-hmm. because then you I don't know I don't think that style would serve me to split it up day by day and categorize it and segment it and also even with terrain like a lot of people would say did you find this hard or easy did you like this what's your favorite what's your worst none of that because all of that all of those opinions and judgments are going to change the way you drive so if you get picky and you say I like this I don't like that or that was easy that was hard you you just you're just adding so many rules for your behavior you know if you tell yourself that's easy you're going to drive maybe more um, less careful you might make a mistake if you say that's hard you might just make it emotionally so stressful when you don't need to so i don't really like to nitpick it's one race you got to race it rocks rain sand mud whatever it is you got to do it have fun enjoy it as much as you can and that's life, you know, life is like this race. Every day is different. But if you're going to keep looking for those days that you like and love, and I don't know, I, I just don't like doing that. I think that you got to just appreciate everything as it comes, when it comes. It's really hard not to give opinions and judgments. I'm not saying mm-hmm. it's easy. It's not easy. But I definitely resist answering these kinds of questions because I resist labeling them within myself just to make my experience mm-hmm. better. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I know that's maybe not a great answer for the question, no, but it's I, just what I discipline myself to do. I think I love that. Like, I mean, 
I can only relate on a brief level. Like one of my ultras, I had to walk seven kilometers in sock feet on gravel and I didn't attach any meaning to it at the time because I said, if I tell myself this is bad, it's bad. Mm, exactly. <laughs> and then, you know, I just did it. It was just something that happened. So I love that not having judgment, you know, not judging yourself or judging the situation. It just, it is what it is, right? Like, and then you enjoy it. Exactly. I mean, your ego or your mind or whatever it is you want to call it, it's always going to want to have familiarity and it's always going to want to label stuff. Mm-hmm. But if you can resist it, you'll find that you're able to connect with the experience in a much more authentic way as opposed to say, oh, I wish we could just miss the dunes or I wish we could just only do dunes or why? If you did dunes forever, you would want something different. And if mm-hmm. you never did dunes, you would you would miss them. So you get everything when you get it. And you like things because you've seen other things. Yeah. <laughs> I think just if you stick to that, you're fine. In this competition, initially when you did the Bahas, you said that finishing was the goal. In Dakar, again, this was your first one. What was the goal? Finishing. And you did. And you came eighth overall. Eighth, yeah. (laughs) Finishing top 10 was a really nice, really nice bonus. Um, But finishing was always the goal. Near the end of the two weeks, I wanted my stage finishes to go up to the top 10 because we were doing well. We were in top 10, but we were finishing mid you know, we were finishing the stage, which is the day 13, 14, 12, 13, 14, 11, 12, 13, 14. And those averages accumulated to shoot us into the top 10 overall. But as a driver, you know, you're a better driver if you finish near the front in the stage, in the day. Um, obviously, the accumulation is good, of course, and, and it helped me. But uh, my goal as a driver is to start finishing, you know, further up front in the day stages. That would be uh, progression as a driver. Obviously, that will translate into a, a better result in the overalls as well. But if you if you start with that, that's a good goal to have. But for my first Dakar, yeah, I just wanted to um, I just wanted to finish. But then when I'd see the the stage wins get better, I'd be happy because that could that shows you progression. Also, I need to monitor my driving. I mean, you don't want to to stay in a profession and to improve in a profession. You have to watch the data. You know, if the data is telling you that this is your limit, maybe you need to re-strategize. You know, but if the data is telling you, okay, you're moving forward, then it gives you an indication as to how you need to behave for your next season, the one after, et cetera. So data is important. Uh, It can affect you mentally, you know, looking at the results too much. But uh, just in terms of if you look at it just uh, in terms of driving and if you're progressing or not, I think it's very healthy. If you get competitive and you start to compare it to other people and things like that, I think that can um, have a negative impact on how you drive because Instead of you become in danger of instead of driving your best, it becomes more to drive better than somebody else. And actually, in reality, that might not be realistic for you. So you have to always remember not to drive in relation to others. Just drive as well as you can drive. And that is the end of the story. And if you do that and you can accept the results that maybe tell you you're last, then you're you're okay because or you're first. But you need to focus on how you drive in relation to your own capacity. If you start to look at others, I think you become in danger of making a mistake. And there is a Dakar season 2023 for you, right? Yeah, that's the plan. So has the goalpost for you moved? Uh, No, because every Dakar is different. You have different cars, different competitors, different variables. And it's difficult to compare 2021 or 2022 to 2023 because it's... um, it's a different set of variables. So actually, 
I said this before to somebody that if you're eighth in 2022, doesn't mean you're eighth in 2023 if you maintain the same level of driving because everything is different. Uh, the terrain, uh, the people, the cars, the circumstances. So there's too many variables to benchmark against the previous year. The, the thing you need to use as your reference and your marker or your goalpost, as you put it, is you're driving. That's it. You're, what's, what's happening between you and the car? What's happening between the car and the terrain? What's happening between your heading, your you and your co-driver? These are the variables that you need to focus on. If you focus on results, it's a very inaccurate marker because they have no impact on your drive. The things that have an impact on your drive are in your immediate bubble, which is you, your car, your co-driver, and the terrain. That's it. These are the only things that you should consider. And the circumstances are going to put you wherever they put you within the grid, right? That's not up to you. These are the things that are up to you. What you do in your car with your co-driver on the terrain. Anything outside of that circle is going to sway you on the grid. So, and then you just got to accept it. As long as you've done 100% of what you feel you can do, and that's it. And then, and then life is gonna is gonna put you where it puts you. You know, that that's all you can do. I love that. I love it. <laughs> the focus on you know just what you can control and the process. It's a discipline. Fantastic. It takes discipline. I, I I try to practice it as much as I can. I try to practice it during the Bahas, during the Saudi Championship, to remind myself. You know, these are the things you need to focus on, and the results are always gonna go however they go. You always obviously want to be as close to the front as possible, if not at the front, but you know, <laughs> you can do what you can do. That's it. So you've had a lot of support from the Saudi Motorsport Federation as well. And we know this is, I mean, I've worked in motorsport starting 10 years ago. And one of the key barriers that I've seen firsthand is, a, you know, support and financial support and things like that. Do you want to talk through the support that you've gotten from the Saudi Motorsport Federation and also some of your sponsors as well and how um, instrumental that is? Yeah, well, financially speaking, I focused on getting sponsors. That's the mm -hmm. most, uh, I have a sponsor, Toyota Abdelatif Shamil, this is my main sponsor, and then a company, Tamar and Hertz, BF Goodrich, company called Feminine, and Toyota Motor Oil. So I packaged these uh, sponsorship, um, you know, products for them, and each one, you know, bought whichever gold, silver, bronze. And then um, they've given me massive support because it takes, uh, you know, takes funding to, to have a full season and the Saudi Motorsport Federation is uh, very supportive in that they provide wild cards for Saudi drivers to enter Dakar this is actually something the host country of Dakar does they give wild cards to their citizens to help them with the entry fees of the race so that's one cost that they had supported uh, the Saudi drivers with the Saudi Motorsport Federation in my experience has had a very I would say great policy if a driver is leading a World Cup or is in second place, they give them some financial aid to continue the cup. And that is because the, a lot of drivers have a lot of points. But for example, they'll run out of funding half of the year and they could lose out on a championship title. So I think that's a great policy from the Federation because it doesn't, it filters through the people who just want to do one or two races. It targets the people who already have enough points that they're leading or that they're in second, which gives them a motivation to finish the championship. And I think that that's a nice way to do it because if you don't have a, a filter for this kind of policy, how do you know where to spend? I mean, I don't want to talk on the Federation's positioning because that's they have their own reasons for the policy they chose. I just mean as a driver, I respect it and I appreciate it. If you're leading a cup or you're second, they want to help you finish. I think that that's great. And they obviously have a cap on that, right? So there's there's a certain amount that that's considered the aid and you apply for it, et cetera. 
but I would focus on mostly um, targeting private sector sponsors because they already get uh, a return on their investment through the exposure and through the marketing. So that mm-hmm. so that's like more of a of a business deal. That's more of a an arrangement that's already established preseason. You can project the whole season based on these numbers, and it's it's more reliable in terms of um, if you do a results based financial you know incentive if you tell your sponsor okay if i become if i'm first in the next race will you give me money for the race after that's going to be very difficult to Mm. manage so what you want to do is sell the full season Mm -hmm. irrespective of results obviously and do your best to give them the best results but i would recommend to sell the whole season so the private sector has helped me a lot especially uh, toyota and they've taken me to the next level and that's really important you know, to, to fund the season, to, to have good sponsors, supportive sponsors. Uh, without the funding, it's some people self-fund their seasons. You know, they have mm-hmm. successful careers and they do it as a hobby. And that's also very um, a great way to do it. You know, so that just depends on the circumstance of each driver. In my case, I, I had a lot of help. You know, because we recognize the importance of it as a entry into sports. So anytime there's, you know, someone on who's sponsored, we absolutely want them to, to talk about their sponsorship. And also, you know, that's the thing, I think just based on your story, which is amazing. <laughs> you know, they're part of that as well, which is wonderful. You know, they're they're part of that story. So how do you think we can get more women involved in rally racing? Visibility, maybe, you know, if women see women driving, it, you know, can open up their idea of what, what they could do in their with their lives if, if they're interested in it, you know. It, it's a personal choice. You know, if you're passionate about these kinds of things and you want to enter the sport, I think visibility is a good way to to show people that it it is possible. But um, I don't talk too much about encouraging women to do it because I don't want to encourage anybody to do anything. You know, it's all personal. You know, what what do you like to do? What do you want to do? If I can, you know, give you help just like Saleh and Saeed and help me out, then I would. But I wouldn't just reserve that for women specifically. Any driver, any driver. But I think visibility for women could open up the pool for sure. What is the route into the sport? For you, it was you were a biker and then you were approached for this. But if someone wants to take this up as a sport, what is the entry or what is the route into it? Uh, in Saudi specifically, I would get in touch with the Saudi Motorsport Federation because they're, they're kind of a hub. They have the information, the knowledge and the know-how, how to, how to take the first steps. So for sure, the federation would be my first stop. So you've got the final event of the Saudi Rally Championship coming up next month, yeah. and then Dakar. Yes. And then what's after that? Or you haven't thought that? I mean, that's quite a lot. I'm not 100% sure at the moment. We'll see. We're going to be following you um, <laughs> before the last, I think there's probably one more question. We definitely want to get you back on after this Dakar experience to kind of hear about it fresh off the event. And that would be wonderful if you're open to that. I hope um, I have a good story to tell. Oh, I'm sure there is. (laughs) And then there's a question that we always ask all of our guests, you know, obviously our name, the metal set, and we think everybody is displaying a tremendous amount of grit. And, you know, especially you, the past, when you think about it, it's only been like three years, really, you've been racing, which is amazing. Do you think grit can be developed or do you think it's innate? I think grit is a product of choice from an experience. So you have an experience, something happens, an event, episode, whatever you want to call it. You choose how to act, behave, move. And I think that can increase your grit. I think people are born with different amounts of grit. And I think people have different reference points in the, within their immediate families or people that are close to them. 
that show them different levels of grit. But I think that it's not limited for anybody or reserved. I don't think that. I think it um, grows with choice, probably, if I had to guess. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you. Just, you uh, just thank you so much for your time, honestly, taking an interest in uh, what I've been up to. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, we ask that you please share it with family, teammates, friends, and even frenemies, or share via social media. Please also leave us a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Five stars only. And visit us on themetalset.com for more stories and resources. Thanks again for listening. Your support means the world to us. This is The Metal Set.